All right, Romans chapter 7. So I'll be reading from verses 14 through the end of the chapter. So Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing, uh, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, just a brief, brief, brief recap from last week. Like I said, we looked at Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, which asked and answered the question, is the law sin? In verse 13, Paul follows up with another question, did that which is good then bring death to me? Now, this whole section we're looking at here, verses 7 through 25 of Romans 7, is trying to address the believer's relationship with the law. And the point he's going to try to conclude with is that because of our justification by grace through faith in Christ that we saw about in Romans 3, we are freed from the law. Now, this relationship with the law... We see in Romans 7, 1 through 6, which we looked at a couple weeks back, where we have died to the law. We saw that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. And we saw also that we were held captive by the law. Now, based on this, you can, like we said last week, you can understand if someone were to have a bad feeling about the law, if they were to have a bad or sour opinion on the law, because it just seems like Paul is negatively speaking about the law. It's something that we were held under. It was something that we were captive to. It was something that we had to die to in order to be free from it. But if it's true that we're not under law, but under grace, then what is our relationship to the law? Okay, Paul makes that point very clear. We are, we have, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace. That was the point he makes in Romans 6. But what is our relationship then if we're no longer under the law? Well, the law is no longer our tutor. So whatever our relationship is with the law, we are no longer under it as a servant or as a slave or as a student, in a a sense. Because that's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. So now since Christ is here, we are no longer under the law. And we also looked at the three uses of the law from a few weeks back. I'll quiz you guys again. You remember the three uses of the law? Mirror. Mirror is one. Curb, Curb is the other. Guide. Guide. There we go. Jane gets the prize. <laughs> oh, sorry. You share the prize. <laughs> 
Whoever had two-thirds gets two-thirds of the prize. But finally, it's also painfully clear that the law cannot stop sin. It can only expose what sin is. The law is completely useless to stop sin. Because if the law could stop sin, then we wouldn't see any sin since the giving of the law. But since the law comes, what does Paul says? He says sin abounds even more over that. It arouses the sinful passions within us. So in regards to the dynamic of sin, the law and the believer, the thrust of the previous passage we saw last week is that the problem is not the law. Okay? The problem is not the law. It is the sin that dwells within us. The problem lies with us. The problem lies in our flesh. The problem lies in the sin principle. It was the sin principle that in us seized an opportunity through the law to produce more and more sin. So when the law was given, the sin principle, our fallen nature within us, saw an opportunity where the boundaries were. It says, oh, you set boundaries? I'm going to transgress those boundaries now. Now that I know what sin is, I'm going to continue to sin. So then when Paul asks the question in verse 13, did that which is good, because he says the law is holy, righteous, and good. He says that in verse 12. So then he says, well, then did that which is good bring death to me? And when he asks that question, he can only answer with the emphatic no. Because as he says in verse 12, the, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So now as we get to our passage this morning, verses 14 through 25, Paul is going to conclude his exposition on the relationship between the believer and the law. And we're going to see three main headings here. We're going to see the conflict between the spirit and the flesh in verses 14 through 17. We're going to see the failure of the flesh in verses 18 through 20. And then we're going to see this war that is raging in my flesh in verses 21 through 25. So as we get into this passage, having established that the law is not the problem, Paul then goes on to discuss the conflict between the two natures within us, the spirit and the flesh. Now, before I go on, I'm going to, I want to sort of warn us or sort of prepare us to, to think that we're not to think of this as sort of like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing, you know, where I have no control over what I'm doing. And he's going to make it, the way he's going to speak through this passage, it's going to make it sound like, well, it's not me. It's the, you know, it's it, the devil made me do it kind of a thing. And we're going to have to sort of prepare our minds to not think in that way as we go through this passage. But there is this conflict within us between the two natures within us the spirit and the flesh. As he says in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm, the, I'm of the flesh. I am sold under sin. So there's this, there's this conflict now. So here's this conflict between these two principles, the spiritual and the flesh. Now, before going on, we should also note briefly um, a topic that has generated a lot of debate on Romans 7, particularly um, starting in verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter. And the question is, who is the I? Okay, Because Paul uses in this section a lot of first-person pronouns. I, me, my, so on and so forth. First-person singular pronouns. And the question that, around, that the commentators wrestle with in this passage is, who is the I? Now, the obvious answer would be, well, the I is Paul. Why, I mean, why, would, Paul, <laughs> why would Paul say... I and not mean himself. But the debate, again, 
uh, involves around a number of issues. First, you see there's a shift in verb tenses. So verse seven, verses 7 through 13, the, ver- the verbs are all in the past tense. I was, I, you know, I was under sin. I you know, once was this and this and this. And then when we get to verses 14 through 25, the tense shifts to the present. But again, like I said, the debate revolves around a number of issues about first, who is the I? And there's been three answers. First, the obvious one is Paul. And the other two are not so obvious. You know, the other two options are the I represents Adam or the I represents Israel. And you're like, well, how the heck can it represent Adam or Israel? I really don't know a good answer to that, other than the fact that when Paul says earlier, um, or he says, I was once alive apart from the law. The only two entities you could say were ever apart from the law would have been Adam in the garden before he received the command to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Israel before they received the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Paul, in a sense, was never apart from the law. He was raised as a Jewish uh, young man. He was, he was bar mitzvah apparently, when he was 13. He was raised under the law. So how could Paul say, I was once alive apart from the law? Another issue is, in verses 14 through 25, is the I, is the person speaking, saved or unsaved? Is he regenerate or unregenerate? So in other words, when it, the passage we just read, is the person there speaking of an experience of his life before he was saved or after he was saved? We'll get into that. Third, if the I is Paul, is he actually speaking about his own experiences, his own personal autobiographical experiences in the flesh? Or is he sort of just speaking in general as a as an everyman, as a stand-in for every believer. You may ask, well, what do you believe? I'll get to that in a second. The traditional Reformed view, okay, so what traditionally has been held from Augustine through Calvin and most Reformed believers hold first that the I is Paul, that Paul is describing the life of a believer, a regenerate person in verses 14 through 25, And third, that Paul isn't so much being autobiographical as he is using his own experiences to describe the experiences of all believers. And that's the view I hold. (laughs) So I'm not going to try to buck tradition here. I'm not going to try to rock the boat. I'm not going to try to rebuild the wheel or anything like that. I'm going to hold to what our tradition has always taught. Now, when I say this, it doesn't mean that the people who don't believe these things are somewhere out in left field and they're... They're heretics or whatever. It's just, this is just, these are areas of discussion when, when you're talking about Pauline scholarship and Romans in particular. Now, the reason why I hold to this view is not only does it make the most sense, in my opinion, but um, it also makes the best sense of Paul's argument in Romans 6 through 8. And it is also the view that makes the best sense when you just read the text straightforward, right? It just sounds like Paul is talking about himself. Why posit that it's somebody else or Adam or Israel or any of these other things? Okay, so I've discussed the question of the I. Now in verse 14, Paul here describes the heart of the conflict in a regenerate believer. And that is the spirit versus the flesh. And it can be summed up uh, like this. 
the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. So this, there's this war between the spirit and the flesh within me. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the law is spiritual? Well, first, by law, Paul is referring to the Mosaic law, the law given to Israel by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And second, as we've so often said, the law reflects God's holy and righteous character. The law is not just some random set of rules that God decided to make up one day when he was bored, but it's a, it's a set of rules given to us that reflect his holy character, his holy nature, the, the moral righteousness that he requires of us. And it's also, as I said, too, it's sort of like the owner specs, right? The, owner man, the owner's manual for how to live a profitable, blessed life. And third, the Mosaic law prescribes to God's people how sinful creatures can approach a holy God. So it's spiritual in the sense that because we're under sin and we need to, and God wants to dwell with us, there has to be some way to mitigate that sin gap, okay? There's a gap between us and God, and we cannot reach it on our own. We cannot work our way to God. God has to condescend and provide us a way in order to dwell within his presence, and the law is what does that. So the law is spiritual, in that it is of God and that it is from God. The law is spiritual in that it describes a life governed by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The law describes the king uh, the law describes kingdom ethics and the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. In fact, the law, if you could follow it perfectly, would actually lead to spiritual life. It would lead to that eschatological life, that end times life that Christ brings when he returns. If you could have fulfilled the law perfectly, and of course if you had no indwelling sin from our, uh, inherit, inherited from, our, uh, from Adam, then you could have actually gone to and inherited an internal glorified spiritual life by fulfilling the law perfectly. So the law is spiritual. It is of the spirit. It is of God. It is from God. It governs kingdom ethics. However, while the law is spiritual, Paul says, I am of the flesh. I am not spiritual. I'm of the flesh. And here's the heart of the conflict. The spiritual versus the fleshly. Now, this is not a dualistic conflict between material and immaterial that you see in a lot of Greek philosophy where the immaterial is good and the material is bad and we need to fight to get away from our bodies and all this stuff. But it is a conflict between two worlds, two realms, two ages. Paul is very big on a two-age view of things. This present age and the age to come. That was a very Jewish way of looking at things. Of course, when, with the coming of Christ you see the two ages sort of overlap. There's, so we talk about the already and not yet. You've heard that, right? The already and the not yet. It's the overlap of the age to come in the current age now. So there we see and we experience aspects of the age to come, but not in a full sense. So the flesh represents the things of this age, the world that is passing away. The spiritual represents the things of the age to come. So when Adam was created, in fact, when the whole heavens and the whole earth were created, they were never meant to be permanent. 
They were never meant to be permanent. And what makes matters even worse is that when Adam sinned, the things of this age then became subject to corruption. So when Paul says, I am of the flesh, he is saying that as presently constituted, I am opposed to the law because my flesh is corrupt. The law is spiritual. I am opposed to it by nature. Moreover, he says that he is sold under sin. The flesh is corrupt. It is sinful. And Paul, as flesh, is under the power and presence of sin. Now, maybe you might be thinking, well, wait, I thought, wait, back in Romans 6, you said the power of sin has been broken. And it has. It has. By our union with Christ, the power and dominion of sin has been broken. But the presence of sin is still there and is still a force to be reckoned with. And that's what Paul is going to be talking about here. The presence of sin is still there in me, in my flesh. And that is why there is this battle now between me, my, my regenerate self, and the flesh that I dwell in. And that's what he says in verses 15 and 16. For I do not understand my own actions. I, I, for, I do, I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. You have to read this carefully <laughs> in, in this section here. But we, Paul's saying he doesn't understand what he does. He doesn't understand what he is actually doing. Now, maybe you felt like that when you sin. You're like, why did I do that? I know that was wrong. Why did I do that? Why did I lie? Why did I, why did I cheat? Why did I look at the answer on this test when I knew that that's wrong? Or, or other things. And maybe I'm the only one who feels this way. But you know, maybe you sin and you're like, why did I do that? I know that's wrong. I wasn't ignorant that this was wrong. I know that was wrong. Why did I lose my temper? Why did I yell at my spouse? Why did I get angry at my kids for something that was stupid? Why do I do these things? You know it's wrong, but sometimes you just do it anyway. And Paul does not understand why he does not do what he wants to do. And instead, he does the very thing that he hates. He knows what is right, and he finds it's hard to do the thing that is right. But the thing that he hates, the thing he knows that is wrong, that's what he ends up doing. Now, me personally, I can under, completely sympathize and understand what Paul is describing here. And I think that's why I think Paul is describing the struggle in each and every one of us. Now, he says here, by acknowledging here that he does not do what he wants, but does what he hates, Paul here is describing the very struggle every Christian has. It is a struggle or a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and it is a struggle that is very real. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Again, that conflict, the contrast, spirit, flesh. The desires of one are against the other, and vice versa. The desires of the other are against the former. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, in verse 16, Paul makes the point that brings us back to something he said earlier. When he says he does what he hates, he is actually agreeing with the law. He understands. He recognizes. When he covets, using the example he used in the previous section, when he covets, he knows that that is against the law. <laughs> he knows 
in, other, in other words, when he, he, I hate coveting. I hate the fact that I covet. It's, he's agreeing with the law. And that's why I think he's, he's also here speaking of the struggle that a believer has. Because a believer would agree that the law is good, that the law is right, that the law is holy. An unbeliever would not be that way. An unbeliever would be like, coveting, what's that? I don't care. You know, what's the law? I mean, you know, that doesn't bother me. The law says coveting is sin. Paul says he hates coveting and he is agreeing with the law that it is sin. The mirror of the law is doing its job in Paul's heart. Now, the point of these verses, though, is to highlight the struggle that goes on in each and every one of us. We want to obey. We want to do what is right. Yet oftentimes we do the exact opposite. In fact, as a result of conversion and new birth, our consciousness now, the conscious within us, the sense of morality that we have from God, part of the image of God within us, because we are now believers, because we're now born again, has been revived in us. It is tender, it is receptive, it is, it is sensitive to sin now. And we feel even a heightened sense of our failure when we do sin. So now in verse 17, we have an answer somewhat to the struggle. The reason why we do what we don't want to do, the reason why we don't do what we ought to do, the reason why we're continually perplexed why we struggle with sin is that it is not you who does this. It's not you doing it. It is sin dwelling in you. Now, like I said earlier, when Paul says it is no longer I who do it, he is saying a couple of things. First, he is not absolving himself of responsibility. Again, he's not saying the devil made me do it. He's recognizing that he is the agent the one committing the sins, but he also recognizes that the sin is not coming from the part of him that has been regenerate. It is coming from the part of him that is still flesh, of the flesh, of this age. He'll say this again in verse 20, but the principle is this. Christians live, as we said, in what is called the already and the not yet. We live in the overlap of the two ages. We have been born again by the Spirit, and as such, we have been set free from the power of sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. But sanctification, we talked about that. It is a work of God's free grace. It is a process by which we subdue sin more and more. We work with the power of the Spirit in us to subdue the sin that still exists in our flesh. Sin is a defeated enemy. Okay, he was defeated on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. Sin was defeated. But he's not a completely, entirely vanquished foe. He still resides in our flesh. He still takes up residence in the only part of us that is yet to be redeemed, and that is our flesh. So when we sin, what we're in fact doing is yielding to the flesh. We're giving control back to that sin principle that lives within us. We are yielding to a defeated enemy. Okay, now we move on to verses 18 through 20, the failure of the flesh. So Paul expands on this idea here of the it's not I but sin dwelling in me concept, where he says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. 
So when Paul says that nothing good dwells in my flesh, he's saying that there is nothing of any redeeming value in God's eyes in my flesh. The flesh is the as of yet unredeemed part of us. Now, we, sh- we need to sort of guard against fully equating flesh and body, okay? It, it, they're, not, they're, they're not completely equal, okay? There's like a large degree of overlap between flesh and body. Paul will make this point later in verses 21 through 25. But our bodies are fleshly. They are products of this fallen, corrupt age. And the reason there is nothing good dwelling in his flesh is because Paul has the desire, but he doesn't have the power. I want to do what's good, but there's something holding me back. I don't have the power. You know, it's like Scotty from Star Trek, right? We don't we don't have the power, Captain. You don't have the power to do what is right in your life. So we have desire without power. The redeemed eye, the part of us that is born again, wants to do God's will. The redeemed eye also recognizes that the law is holy, righteous, and good. But all this desire is no good if we lack the power or the ability to carry it out. As an example, all the desire in the world won't help you to be an NBA player if you're short and unathletic. All right? I have to put unathletic there because there are actually short people in the NBA that are actually quite good. So if you're short and unathletic, all the desire in the world is not going to make you an NBA player. And this desire without power concept explains why not only Paul's experience, but also the experience of every believer. Where he goes on in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, the Paul, the redeemed eye, wants to do the good, but the very good he wants to do is exactly what he doesn't do. Additionally, the evil thing Paul recognizes as evil and does not want to do, that is what he actually practices. That's what that word there means. He practices, he's actually doing it. It's it's a practice of his life. And this is the battle royale in all of us. Maybe to think about it another way. How much effort does Satan have to exert on the unregenerate person to keep him sinning? Probably very minimal to nothing, right? I mean, the unregenerate person is going to just sin by nature. Because the unregenerate person isn't trying to do the will of God. So Satan doesn't have to tempt them away from the will of God. Believers struggle because we're believers, because the Holy Spirit is in us and is purifying us. I mean, just think for a moment how difficult it is to kick any habit. How hard is it to kick a habit that you have? You know, it's very hard, right? You, you, try, to, you, know, you try to go for a while, and then sometimes you slip up, and then you, okay, I've got to go back on the, on the wagon again, and then you slip up again. It's hard to kick a habit because it's a habit. But sin is a habit we all need to kick. So then Paul concludes this in verse 20 on this section of the failure of the flesh, by essentially repeating what he has said in verse 17, where he says, Now if I, do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul concludes that if he is doing the very thing he does not want to do, it is not him, it is not the redeemed him doing it. Again, this is not some the devil made me do it cop-out on Paul's part. He is laying out 
some serious theological truths here. First, he is saying the depth of human depravity in man. We're talking about the depth of sin, the depth of the depravity in us. It is very deep. It is very strong. When Adam sinned, human nature was corrupted to its very core, to the very heart of its being. And by being in Adam, which is what we all are by birth, we are in Adam. We inherited this totally corrupt nature. So that's part of why the struggle is real. But second, even though we've been saved by grace through faith and the power of sin has been broken, the remaining presence of sin in our flesh means we do not perfectly or only will that which is good. We try to do that which is good, but sometimes we fail. And we fail because the presence of sin is still there. And third, the process of sanctification is the process of daily battling with the flesh to combat the lingering effects of sin in the flesh. And fourth, the power to fight sin does not dwell within us, that is, in our flesh. That's why Paul says, I have the desire, I don't have the power. There is no white-knuckle sanctification, okay? You can't just sort of like, Ugh, you know, grit your way through it. And it's like, I'm going to just work through this on my own. Sanctification is not a matter of doing more or trying harder. We have the will, but no power. And the power comes from the Holy Spirit, which we will see when we start looking at Romans 8. So now in the verses that remain, Paul is going to talk about the war in my flesh. And he brings this chapter to a close with a cry of despair and a glimmer of hope. But in verse 21, he acknowledges again that there are two principles warring inside of him. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now that word there in verse 21, law, it's the same word he's been using all throughout the chapter. But in some translations here, particularly the New American Standard, they translate that word law or nomos as a principle. Not the, you know, because they, they do that because Paul's mainly talking about the Mosaic law through here, but when he gets to this point, he's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about a principle within him. There is a principle within me that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That is the sin principle. We see a similar use of this word in Romans 8.2. I don't know if it's on the same page for you, but he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, that idea of principle. The idea of a principle. But the point here, what could possibly be wrong with Paul and with us? He has just said in verse 20 that the good he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the evil he doesn't want to do, that's what he does. What could be wrong with us is that we continue in this schizophrenic type of existence. The problem is that evil is, it, it dwells within him or is near him. And he explores this further in verse 22 where he says, He delights in the law. I delight in the law in my inner being. This is like the psalmist. Like the psalmist, Paul can say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Paul delights in the law, in his inner being, in his inner man, in his regenerated part.
Elsewhere, Paul, in Paul's letters, he makes this distinction between the inner versus the outer man. You can jot these references down if you like. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, where he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, your body, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That is the part of us that is redeemed. Or in Ephesians 3.16, he says that, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that, that redeemed part of you. The contrast between the redeemed, regenerate part of us and the unregenerate, unredeemed part of us. That's the inner man versus the outer man. The inner man has been made new in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The outer man, our unredeemed flesh, is wasting away. Again, you see this overlap of the two ages, the already and the not yet. Our inner man has already been renewed and made ready for the age to come. Our outer man has not yet been made ready. Yet despite this joy in the inner man, Paul sees the conflict in verse 23. But I see a different law, a different principle in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So he delights with the, in the law of God, but there is a different law in the members of his body. Turn with me to Galatians 5. We looked at this a little bit earlier. I want to read this passage in full. This is a great example of this principle that we see here, that the, the warring of the two principles within us, the, the one that delights in the law of God, but the, the other principle of sin, which is in your members. And in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 26, I'm going to read through the end of that chapter, verse, from 16 to 26. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, the spirit versus the flesh. You need to walk in the spirit, that is, live a life that is characterized by the spirit. And by doing so, then you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh, the, the unregenerate part. We read verse 17 earlier. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit, just a quick note here. Notice how he talks about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Works are things you do. Fruit is something the Spirit does in you. You don't, you don't bear fruit. <laughs> you cannot bear fruit. Fruit is grown in you by being connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit flowing in through you, working in you, bearing fruit. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, right, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, if you're walking in the Spirit, you really don't need a law because you're already obeying the law by default because you're walking in the Spirit and the law is spiritual. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. You have killed the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You can turn back to Romans 7. So in this passage, Paul notes that the flesh and the Spirit are in opposition to one another. They are at war in the life of the believer. And as the Holy Spirit works sanctification in us, our flesh rebels and resists in us. So this different law wars against the law of my mind. So here, the soul of the believer is a battlefield between the spirit and the flesh. Sin and the flesh war against the new creation within each one of us. Right? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are new creations. The old is dead and the new has come. But that unredeemed flesh there is warring against that new creation. Which is why Paul urges us to make ready for our spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 by telling us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against all of these demonic powers that are at work in the world. Again, that's why Peter also warns us to abstain from fleshly lusts in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, interesting phrase to call believers, aliens and strangers, but his whole idea is that we are sojourners. This is not our home. We are, you know, as the old song, I'm just a passing through, right? So this is not my home. We are aliens and strangers. We are strangers in a strange land. But he urges them to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. But Paul is so desperate in this battle that he likens his struggle to being imprisoned. The struggle against sin can feel like that, especially if we're talking about so-called besetting sins, right? Those particular sins we all seem to battle with within our lives, those sins that continue to trip us up. It can feel like bondage. It can feel like a bondage, even for the one in whom the power of sin has been broken. And these sins can sometimes take a deep hold within us. Getting a, and, and getting rid of them is sort of like weeding your garden. You can't just pull the weed. You've got to make sure you get the root, or else that weed will continue to grow back all the time. As I've been saying, even though sin's power has been broken, sin's presence is still very, very real. Which leads to Paul's cry of despair in verse 24, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Have you ever struggled with sin that that's your cry? Have you ever felt so beaten down by your sin that you're just like, wretched man that I am, who is going to save me? Now, when he says who will deliver me, he's not asking a question to which he doesn't already know the answer. Paul's a good lawyer. He doesn't ask a question to which he already doesn't know the answer. Now, the answer comes in verse 25 and then continues all the way through Romans 8. But when you're caught in the depths of the struggle with sin, it can feel as if things are hopeless. 
Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we're new creations. But sometimes we lose sight of this. That's why the answer to any struggle in the Christian life is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the only one who can save you. And that phrase, body of death, is interesting. It is through our physical bodies that sin has established a beachhead, a foothold in our lives. Think of when the, uh, the Allied armies invaded on Normandy. They established a beachhead on Normandy Beach. And it was from there that they were able to launch their attack against the Axis powers. Now reverse that into a, a bad situation. That's Our bodies, our flesh, is the last beachhead of sin in our lives. It is where sin has got a foothold on us. It's sort of like, you know, the door is closing, but you stick that foot in the door so it can't close all the way. That's, that's what sin is in our flesh. And since the body is as of yet unredeemed, it serves then as a vehicle for sin. But after this cry of despair comes this glimmer of hope in verse 25, where he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, Um, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. The struggle continues and will continue until the day Christ returns. But we have hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The inner man, the new creation, serves the law of God. But on the other hand, our flesh, the outer man, serves the law of sin. It serves the sin principle. It is the vehicle for sin. Now, again, we shouldn't see this as, a, well, I guess sin is just inevitable. I guess I'm just destined to sin. Might as well just let it go. Who cares? We still need to fight and struggle against the flesh. The whole point is to get us to the point where we realize that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You have to recognize the cardinal truth. You have the desire. You don't have the power. You need the power. And that's coming in Romans 8. But the victory isn't white-knuckling our sanctification, but turning to the only one who can save. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we'll stop here. Uh, Next week, I think your handouts are wrong. I didn't put the, I think it's got the old date on there, the 27th. Um, I forgot to change that. My apologies. But the 3rd, 2021. Yay, 2021. It's almost here. Uh, We'll start looking at Romans 8. And we're going to look at the first four verses of Romans 8 as we start to look at life in the Spirit.